0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: This episode of Red Inca, we get on someone who has become one of the most heard voices in the game today.
0: Danny Morrison and I am a uh, TV commentator around the globe.
1: He had a 10-year career for New Zealand, bowled with Richard Hadley before becoming the IPL court jester. On this podcast, we talk about his history, drop catches, a tough period for New Zealand, his batting, a lot about ducks, and how his mother inspired his commentary. Just a quick note on the audio for this one, Danny Morrison recorded this pretty much on the beach in the Meldives because of obvious reasons he can't get back into Australia at the moment. So the sound quality is maybe not quite as good as you may be used to on this show. I'm going to start with one of my pet peeves. Don't worry, it's not attacking you. I think it's pro-Danny Morrison. Every time I've ever commentated with Alan Wilkins, I go out of my way to mention that he took 243 first-class wickets because I think that Alan Wilkins was a brilliant first-class cricketer and now he's known just as Mr. Smooth's Welsh voice. (laughs) You took 286 international wickets, and I feel that at times when I follow your commentary, your cricket is almost never even mentioned. Is that something that bothers you, or have you just moved on? It just doesn't matter now. You're Danny Morrison, international commentator.
0: (laughs) Jared, interesting. I don't see it like that sometimes because people often ask that. Because, you know, you had an international career first and it was, let's call it, pretty much 10 years off and on. And then commentary, I suppose. Now, it's been a couple of decades. So you can see why it dominates uh, because it's gone for twice as long. And I think this fast, the crazy world, particularly with T20, um, you, ser- you certainly sort of the, the fans will go, that's who he is. That's what he's about. And that's all we know he's about. So we just rock and roll with it.
1: You took the eight most test wickets of any New Zealand bowler. Obviously, there's a, a crop of New Zealand seamers coming through at the moment. It's that's quite an achievement. I mean, at one stage you were right up there. You you know you weren't far away from number one. Obviously, number one was you were never going to reach that. Uh, well, with, with Mr. Hadley, we can come on to him in a moment. But you did have a phenomenal international career.
0: Well, I'd like to say, and people look at you and go. Well, look, he was look a very good trier, and then on his day, you could have. Fluctuations of form that favoured you at times, and I, and I'm really honest about that. Look, I suppose if you break it down, and I'm not really a big stats guru, Jared. I'm, uh, you know, I think um, I took ten fifers, and only one of them was overseas in the West Indies, and that's why it stands out in my head, uh, way back in '96, um, It's because you know, for us Kiwis, we tended to need the ball to grip a little, a bit like English conditions. And when I think about playing at home, like everyone's so successful at home because it's your own backyard and you know the environment so well and you grew up in it, so you should be good in it. It sort of doesn't really sort of, I suppose, freak me out given what's happened post my playing days that you think, well, look, you know, I had a great time and, I, you know, you, you wanted to do well. And I think the ultimate goal as a teenager, as a kid who was 13, 14, was to perhaps play for your country one day and really give it a fair crack when a lot – Obviously, who heard me um, and gave me a lot of stick at high school and laughed, which you know you just got on with. And I just sort of rear vision mirror, let's keep moving forward.
1: You started very young in your international career, and you played one year of county cricket and uh, didn't quite stick. I think you played for Lancs, so quite a good team uh, as well. Do you think maybe if you started a little bit later, had a little bit more experience around the world, you would have been a bit of a more complete bowler? Because for those who don't remember, you had a bit of pace and you obviously, you moved the ball away from the right-handers. You weren't the tallest bowler, but you got them to skid through a little bit. I always thought that you were a very top-quality bowler. Oh,
0: look, When I look at it, I think you look at county cricket, particularly when that South African isolation was on through the 70s and 80s with the development of the West Indies and a lot of those South Africans playing in England and the county circuit. Then you've got a lot of the great Pakistani guys coming in, uh, as well as uh, a mixture of Aussies and Kiwis. It was really tough to get a a spot there. And, of course, it was only one player. You didn't have the specialists of today doing T20, or you'll play 50 overs, or you'll be more of a a Red Bull specialist. So there were little opportunities for that. So I was actually really grateful. I actually got one go at it. That was part one of a dream. And sadly for me, being somewhat vertically challenged, as my PE teacher said, look, Morrison, you're going to have to wake up and smell a coffee. Um, instead of being circumcised, you've had your legs cut off. So it was always going to be difficult for me to get bounced and run and be, you know, um, truly outstanding. But, you know, that was a great thing for me to fight with and just get on with. Um, and as you said, you know, look, I was nippy enough and could swing it out and then ask questions. And then you develop those skills later on. So really for me, the groin thing was a big issue. Uh, for people either watching or listening to this later on, I had my first hernia there at Lancashire, so I was grateful for them for that the County Cricket Club. Uh, paid for that with private surgery. Then I had a laparoscopic procedure in 94, and to add to the 246, the trifecta, I had uh, a Dr. 10 release. So that whole moving centre thing was very demanding. And that very first uh, hernia, I mean, I only lasted really half the season at so sort Lancashire of July, and that was frustrating. But I, look, I was truly grateful, and you did. You learnt a lot in terms of, again, thinking about using the crease and bowling again with different balls, again, the Duke versus kookaburra. And it really was, there was those other little subtle nuances, particularly for me developing a slow out swinger and you, as a change-up rather than just cutters that you see today in 20 There were subtle little swingers, and drifters, rather than trying to, Cut it so much, so they were great to learn off people and watch was in Akram and, and Waka at times, and then just speak to other bowlers on the county circuit. So that's where we learned so much of that trade. Uh, whereas today, as we know, Jared, you know, you've got so much T20 franchise cricket that guys will sit around the dressing room because now they spot dressing mm-hmm. rooms regularly and can pass on that knowledge.
1: You said you don't look at StatsGuru much. I had a bit of a look at your numbers. It's quite clear when you go through your career that you were an above-average one-day bowler. Perhaps if you come through in a later era, you'd be thought of as completely different. You took a wicket every 36 balls in ODI cricket. Is that because you took it more seriously, or do you think the white ball just suited you a little bit better because of the way you bowled?
0: This is such a great interview. Because I think I'm a i am was a lot better test bowler. But you'll have to dive back and I'd love you, Stats Guru, <laughs>
1: to
0: go back in archives and see how many drop catches in test match cricket. They'll go off my bowling from nineteen eighty seven, late eighty seven, right through to when I stopped my last test match against the Poms in ninety seven. Because people go, Oh, you yeah, know, what a knob. You know, what do you want to bring that up? Well, I tell you why, because if you go through my career, that amount of one innings test matches that I was involved with out of 48 test matches I was in five winning test matches three of them were for the great Sir Richard Hadley so there's only two that I was involved with and then I laugh and I look at you know you think about stats I, I mentioned that I'm not a stats guru well that's the one stat for me that if you like has given me this haircut is because I pulled my hair out so much you may be old enough to remember in 1993 after a great series in, in New Zealand against Australia we held out of the trans tasman one all. So i got a seven foot and a six for Eden Park, again, New Zealand conditions. And then got three wickets in three test matches at Perth, Hobart, and then Brisbane did get a test wicket there. So when I look at the amount of drop catches in that series alone, and then the one day series that they dropped, and I'll never forget Ben, I'm going, I think they've broken his heart finally. Because we changed that side so regularly, Jared, that our slip cordon wasn't solid like it was with. Jeff Crow, Jeremy Coney, who was a very good slipper for Hadley, and whether that was Martin Crow at different times in there, John Reed in the gully, you know, they had a very settled side in those early mid eighties, right through to 87, 88. And so when I look at that, that's probably the one thing out of my whole career that irks me a little bit, is my average bowling is nearly 35. When mm. I think I'm better than that, I think I'm more late twenties. If I'm really, you know, if we if we held on and at times I'll be admitting myself, at times we didn't quite bowl well enough or our batters couldn't de- deliver more than enough for us. So it would be a great stat to go back in and see how many single innings that I bowled in at, at the opposition. And so, you know, that's just the, the reality, too, of that side in the early 90s. Once Hadley had finished and you lost Hadley, Sneddon, Chatfield finished in 89. But we really had quite a revolving door policy of quicker bowlers that came and went. Chris Kins had his, his own issues after that Test match in 89. I think about Murphy Sewer, who was a very good left-arm talent. Willie Watts, Chris Pringle was a one-day specialist. Uh, you know, you had Richard Petrie. You had Stuart. I could go on and on. And we had a lot of guys coming in and out. Simon Dool started in 92, 93, or, or 93 more. And then he had a lot of injuries with his knees. Um, I had the groin issues a little bit later in Italy, sort of around late 94 into 96. But I finished by the beginning of 97. Um, so I also probably look at as that we didn't play as consecutively as a lot of test matches. So that's another great step. When you look at test match cricket is that the Aussies and the Poms played five matches, a lot of Ashes, that's just a given. But even against India and Australia, was, a lot of the time you could have four matches, and we never really played in those. So we only had three or a couple of one-off situations I recall playing in, um, or you suddenly had you know just two test matches here and there, or just three if you're lucky, and then one day cricket dominated. So for me, when I look back out at, at, at of my skill set, I think for me test cricket... Was really where it was at for me, and I, in terms of hurrying up people, having less variety because I got in close to the wicket and emulated my idol, which was Dennis Lillee and Richard Hadley. I had great grace to play with and fortune to be alongside and learn from um, to get in close a lot and then use the crease a bit. So, so this is a fascinating conversation because I've never really discussed this publicly much at all because I've just gone you know, bollocks, just get on with it. And, you know, you know, it was such a long time ago in the rear vision mirror that people don't quite, yet. Yeah, it's fascinating to ask, you, oh, you played a bit of test cricket? Oh, look, I said, oh, you played 48? I would have loved to have played 60 off because of their groin problems. I, I think I missed about 17 or 18. We went through once with a guy called one of the other stats guys, another Ian Smith in New Zealand. Um, not the commentator, Smith, who I played alongside. Um, so there's a lot of things that I look back on that, that were, you know, have they irked me? No, not the virked, me. It was just, I think it was just frustrating. We dropped a lot of catches. We were very inconsistent. We were known as the wild punch uh, in those early 90s. We had a hell of a good time. Sponsored by a brewery like Australia when they had 4X. It was such a different landscape, Jared, that you, you know, you still it very seriously. trained pretty hard, and I did, because uh, I had to. You know, five foot nothing um, and stay fit and run in and try and hurl a, quick, a cricket ball quickly uh, was always going to be challenging.
1: That was one of the reasons to ask about county cricket because you mentioned it when you were talking about how many Tests Australia and in England and now India play. You look at your record, it's just not a lot of matches and I know you talked about you groin and, and all that sort of stuff but I wonder, especially in that era. But there's a lot of teams around the world that still have this. It's hard to develop as an international cricketer when you play a two-test series, and then you've got, you know, a bunch of other things coming up. And you had that opportunity with county cricket, as you said, it was a, it was an incredible era. I mean, you would have been there not that far away from when what was it? Was a Macram was the number one seamer at Lancashire, and Patrick Patterson was the number two seamer. I mean, they had, you know, ridiculous options all these counties. But I suppose when you're looking at it, it's a very hard thing for you to develop. And, you know, Richard Hadley, if you go back in the first part of his career, he was a very, very good cricketer. When he went and played with Nottingham week in, week out and had all that, he became an incredible cricketer. And I wondered if that for you, if you'd have just played more cricket, and you would have been able to pick up those other skills a little bit quicker and, and overcome your height. And to be fair, your height probably would have been an advantage as well with LBWs and those sorts of things as well compared to, you know, some of the other guys.
0: Well, I look at it, and in fact, I've just had this conversation recently. was that one of the guys here, a biomechanism guy, is that you should have placed your feet down quicker, like Malcolm Martian. So the classic is a shorter guy like that to run through the crease um, is so much more advantageous in terms of your timing through the crease. And the other one was Shane Bond. Now, admittedly, Shane Bond's 6'2", so he's a good build anyway for a quick bowler. But his feet, Planted very quickly. He put the, the back foot down and the front foot down quite quickly. Whereas a lot of us had watched the great Dennis Lee and Richard Hadley. Um, you know, you think about those guys with quite big, long delivery leaps um, to execute what they were trying to do. And so, you know, you just followed that because you watched them on TV and they were very inspiring as a uh, 10, 11 year old way back in those mid 70s. So, When I look at that, you're right. If we'd played more cricket and got an opportunity, and the only reason we got an opportunity was the great ones in Akron was they were touring. They just won that Cricket World Cup in 92, and they had the five tests of the summer. It was a very long, full summer. So Lancashire needed an overseas player. And and you think about the amount of guys that were asked. Again, Patrick was tired, and he was a bit sort of hard to get hold of. And a couple of South Africans, I think, um, had injuries, fell over, had something else to do. Um, I remember Stephen Jack, I think he was even asked before me um, because they had such a real South African connection. Steve Jeffries was another one who played, another left-hand who played for Lancashire, uh, South African. So, you know, there's a, when you look at the South Africans, very strong um, relationship with the English counties because, of course, they weren't playing international test cricket. That's why that was their stage, and they really did perform, and they were hungry, and they were keen, and they were driven. Um, so a lot of counties had that relationship with the South African connection. So, you know, by grace, um, it was just timing. England were in New Zealand. Um, I remember Big Bob Bennett was the Lancashire um, uh, chairman, and he was also the manager of the England cricket team in 92. So I sat and spoke with Neil Fairbrother, who was the captain of Lancs, and there was an opportunity. And I just spoke, I said absolutely. I said, yeah, for sure. I'd love, I'd love to come and learn the craft and then play for that great club. Which was at Old Trafford, and it was. It was a great time in your life, and I was, you know, I was engaged to Kimberley, and um, we lived there. It was just brilliant. So there was all of that craft learning, as you said, Jared. Um, it would have been nice to kept doing it, um, but at the same time, I just, and it just a realist as well. There was just so many great players that were on that circuit um, to do because the, the the game hadn't quite stepped up until the this new millennial, the new millennium. And you've got so much more of another um, format to deal with, so it's just so much more congested. Whereas back then, geez, we're talking nearly thirty years ago. Quite scary, isn't it? Um, you know, that just wasn't it wasn't around.
1: The other thing that you touched on earlier was the losses. You said you had five wins. Is that what you said in your? Oh, well,
0: correct. So, and three of them were with, with Hadley, and then we had Pakistan ninety four, and prior to that same year before that was ninety three. There was the one against Australia. Now I'd like you because I won't know. But I reckon it's true, possibly as a stat, that was that the last time New Zealand beat Australia in New Zealand in a test match? Like, we've beaten them in Australia. I mean, that one in Hobart in 2011, because I was living in Aussies, obviously, by then. I'm just trying to think, was that the last time New Zealand actually beat Australia in a test match to have a, a, a tied series? It would be fascinating to know, because way back in March of 93 New Zealand didn't play a series against the Aussies New Zealand took 2000, and I remember going to that as a, a luncheon ceremony, and that's 2000. And then again, I don't think they played until 2005, and then again in 2010. Um, and then you think from 2010, again, when Baz McCullum finished, didn't he, in 2016, he got that fastest test hundred ever. So when you look at the spasmodic of, of over 30, well, almost 30 years, 1993 to, you know, having a a full test series of three tests. (laughs) Three tests, a full test, three tests. And it's not that many test match series in New Zealand with Australia to have a victory because, as I say, there's there's that one in Hobart and then there's the one in uh, that draw. They got that 2015 series in Australia was just full of draws and then a loss, which was the day-night test match in Adelaide. Don't start talking about that with uh, umpires not being able to see <laughs> um, Nigel. do Nigel. I'm still having therapy in so long. Um, so uh, it's amazing what you remember it to see live, isn't it, uh, these days. So, uh, yeah, Jared, I reckon it'd be fascinating to know if that was, in fact, New Zealand's last ever test match over Australia in New Zealand.
1: It is. I just had a look. You're right. I mean, there haven't been a lot of tests, which which go back to what we were talking about a minute ago. But haven't been a lot, and you took a, a big six for. Is that that's my memory in that match? Does that sound right? Yeah,
0: that's right. And I remember Dipak opened the bowling in the second innings, and and we're just laughing about that at having a beer here in the Maldives on our transitional way back to Australia. Um, Tuppy ran past one. Who was talking about that? Was it, it Haydos? So I was laughing about that. Going on about that, that he ran past it and they gave him so much stick. Uh, it was like a run out, but he just sort of went out to put the milk bottles out and just stayed out and the door closed. Bizarre. Um, but you're yeah, right, we won that and that allowed us to draw the Series 1 all and hold the Trans Tasman Trophy for the last time we've held it.
1: Must be. That so that period up until about 93 so in in the 80s you can make a very very good claim that new zealand's the third best team in the world in test cricket and obviously you know, incredible up until the 92 world cup had a lot of success you then the team does drop off as your record sort of suggests uh what is it like to be representing your country when you were losing that much and you've just had success you've come out of probably well unarguably the greatest era that New Zealand cricket's ever had. What is it like to be running into bowl with Richard Hadley now off retired? As you said, all these different guys coming in, getting injured. Uh, Martin Crowe has left. And you being the talisman, I mean, two of the wins that you played in, you took big wickets as well. Like a lot of pressure on you personally. You are one of the more senior players probably by that point also.
0: Hmm. It's funny too. My recollection and, and, you know, I've actually got not a bad memory at times. Um, we could be selective. But you just got on with it. It was that, you know, those guys, you know, no one can play forever. And certainly Richard Hadley tried his best. He was 39, for goodness sake, there in, in Birmingham in 1990. It was extraordinary. Played that long. But I remember speaking with him at times. And, you know, you, you get those sort of guys that come along once in a generation, and particularly Hadley from New Zealand and when you look at John Wright who played at Derby for a long time and Michael Holding and Peter Kirsten and all that and then you had Martin Crowe playing and making his way with a bit of county cricket in 84 and filled in for Viv and Joel and then took over that in 87 so he, he was around quite a bit playing some of that to get experience Jeff Howard of course with his connection at Surrey so there was that, that nucleus of those guys that played a lot of county cricket you could see how that helped through the 80s. So they really were, they were, I mean, they were seen as a lot of those guys with folk heroes, you know, Chris Kenders' father, Lance, big hitting sixes at the MCG and that shoulderless excalibur back. So it was fascinating to grow up through that and then suddenly come out the other side as a teenager and then play with those guys. And I do look back on that, and it's funny because you look at it and you sort of pinch yourself and you go, Good grief. You know, you, you're sort of playing alongside your teenage heroes that you are finishing high school with. And you go, hang on a minute. Now you've been in the side with them, particularly late 87, 88, 89, 90. I've had a good three years with a lot of those senior guys. Ray and Sneddon, Ewan Chatfield, certainly Richard Hadley till the middle of 90. And then all of a sudden they're gone. And then we had this very young side. Warren Lees was the coach. Marty Crow took over. So it was, again... And you know the big thing about, I reckon, Chad, if I'm really honest about this, is that our number one sport is rugby. And when you live in, uh, live in New Zealand and are brought up in New Zealand breathe it, is that it dominates and it's huge. And then I remember Shane Thompson. Now, Tomo got left out on that West Indies with a shoulder problem. And then it was late in the night and they, we had to go ahead to go off and get an MRI. But back then, it was very difficult. to more of an X-ray. And we are in St. Vincent, for goodness sake. But the management, there was a lot of a bit of crisis going on with the team, the management versus some of the players, and it wasn't easy. And so then he obviously limped out of that tour, and then it was all it was all so he was all done. And I remember seeing him a couple of years after that, and i just finished playing. It as he it goes, it's "Fascinating, isn't Once you once you walk away from it, Danny, and you, and you really look at it in the cold light of day, just is just pales really, considering what those big All black legends are about, and how rugby and the All Blacks." And a such a big brand in a little country, and so yes, we were the sort of the number one summer code. But there was always that about with rugby and Super Rugby had just started uh, in 1996 with the Auckland Blues and the whole big franchise thing of Super Rugby. So there was all of that happening, and it was bubbling away in those early nineties to happen and break away. And then that Rugby World Cup in '95, and then Super and all that professionalism. So prior to all that, it was massive. And then I look back at, you know, we toured overseas a lot and, you you know, where the subcontinent quite a bit. I think about Pakistan, 90, India in 95, uh, bits and pieces of, you know, the Sri Lanka thrown in there a bit. Bangladesh obviously went around, went to a little bit. You know, back then, um, the exposure wasn't what it is today. And so I think when you look at it, it's not on that huge a scale. So for a lot of us, Whilst it was, you know, there was pressure, of course it was, and you wanted to perform and you wanted to stay on the side. And because it was such a revolving door policy at times, you thought, geez, you know, these guys are getting injured or the form's slightly out. And, you know, it was at times a little fickle. But at the same time, from my corner where I was sitting, um, I was just... I was just trying to do what I could do, and that's what Mark Crowe was just asked. I want you to do what you can do, Danny, and stay fit as much as you can, and this is your job, and this is what you want to do. And so he was very pragmatic about a lot of stuff like that, and very good in that regard, because he was up here, and everyone else were all down here. So he got frustrated at times. But I think that also helped in the scenario, Jared, that we really were there – doing what we could do and, you know, realistic at times, you know, and then you could have your say, particularly in New Zealand. It was a one-day series – you know, possibly a test match. Because you you'll know better than most being a, a, a story in the game is that test match cricket was really quite trench warfare. You know, if you got an honourable draw, man, it was like a win today, and you hung in there and just hung in you know, and survived, and got a bit of a kick out of it. You said, well, you know, we wouldn't didn't lose. There might have been a weather in it, and the pitch was so flat and grotty, <laughs> you could hang on. But until a certain rock star's come along, like warney, and McGrath and that combination and and the other protagonists around that. And the two Ws were pretty freaky. And then you had Alan Donald bursting because they got re-entry. We had some very good bowlers um, that could take 20 wickets, whereas for us the old Kiwis, it wasn't quite the same. We didn't quite have the superstars or the quality of bowlers that could suddenly, at the end of the day, take 20 wickets quite
1: regularly. Let's go on to your batting a little bit because I find your batting fascinating for three different reasons. Wikipedia says, I only found this out when I was doing research for this. I had never heard this one, that you once released a duck caller with your name on it uh, because you tied the world record for the most ducks. Is First, I just have to know if that's true.
0: Yeah, yeah. I came a lovely little clear thing, and it was a, it was the turquoise blue because back then, New Zealand cricket, remember the one day outfits wanted to get away from the grey? and they went with that sort of teal colour, which is supposed to be a Pacifica... I've got
1: one, because it's, it's one of the worst shirts ever made.
0: Yeah, a good type funny teal colour with a fern on it. <laughs> and so the duck caller was that colour, I think, with the, the black other end on it, where you go... and blow through. And so they had this duck caller, this whole merchandise, because my testimonial season is always going to be about fun and a little bit zany and a bit out there, for obvious reasons. And so we had... Danny the duck character come out. Well, you, you know you've now tied the record, so let's just have fun with it. So we had duck on the menu as a food for luncheon. We had chocolate little ducks, little ducks, and then we had these duck callers from New Zealand cricket. And I tell you what, we were there because it's their old Aussie, good Sydney cider, which was Neil Maxwell, who's part of Frontier now more recent decades with his marketing and other companies. He was the marketing manager for New Zealand cricket, that he came into that around that middle of 96. Once it was a big shift and a change, Steve Brixton came in as coach. Max almost came along with that package, if you like, Neil Maxwell. And so he loved the whole concept. I was having this big celebratory testimonial of season 96, 97, which ended up being my last playing season. With duck ties, uh, with this big duck banner. I had these miniature bats, right, from Gunnar Moore. They thought, oh, Danny's a bit... The tongue into a bit naughty, you're going to put a hole in it. And there's these 20 inch bats. you see the smaller ones. Well, these are the bigger ones. And they, God bless them, done more. Pete Wright done more up there in Trent Bridge. He sent me out. Oh, we could have had thousands. Of, I reckon he must have sent me probably about 300. There's a big box there, maybe about three or 400. Anyway, and I got one of the dads at Britain Winyard, who was the big company who bought all these different um, sports paraphernalia in and sports goods. And they, he, one of the dads had this lovely, um, uh, almost like a bandsaw. And so he cut the circle at the bottom of the, uh, the bat, the 20-inch good size miniature. And so that was like the ball had blown through there. Which They said, Danny, it's not going to it well for sales. For us. It looks like we've got weak bats. <laughs> but the whole synergy around it was, of course, the hole, and that's why you've got so many ducks. Because my bats, you know, they, they, they didn't want to give me good bats. They'd give me these old, old ones, batting down at 11. And uh, it was a lot of fun, and we sold those, and they, it was just, we just it was something different. And I think it was making light of all the tough stuff we'd had as a side, losing quite a bit. Sponsors were very loyal, the bank at the time, BNZ, now New Zealand or ANZ, but it was BNZ back then in the 90s. They were superb, and we had, and they embraced it too. And so I had a wine come out with stumps on it going as a label, but certainly the duck caller was beauty. And it, again, it just fitted in the magazine, which was the Cricketers Week. So you can imagine, us cricketers we're always on those Women's Day magazines. For goodness sake, mm-hmm. what was going on? And so I had this Danny and Die. It's a lie. And luckily, God willing, it came out before dear Die passed. So this was '96. It came out. She passed on the 31st of August, 1997, in Paris. So I'd had it out for at least a, a good amount of time. But it was Danny and Die. It was a lie on the cover. You know, there was a whole thing with Will Carling and a couple of other names stuff of celebrity-type guys that she possibly could have um, had as, as lovers. And so we had a heap of fun with it. And so it was, again, just poking fun at yourself and not taking life too seriously.
1: Talking about that, it's incredible that you tied the world record for the most ducks, but you also were a constant night watchman. So the reason I got you on originally, if you remember, was because I'm doing the entire history of New Zealand opening batters because... The New Zealand opening batters as a species is almost the most interesting species of human being I've ever come across. <laughs> and when I'm looking through this, at this stage, I've looked at everyone from New Zealand who's ever opened in a test match, and your name's there. Yes. And I was like, how does this happened? <laughs> Take me through it.
0: So 1990 versus India it was a great test match, actually. Speaking of uh, one of those five that I've been involved in, it was February of '90 because... Richard Hadley had got and Mandraker out as his 400. So Hadley became the first man to 400. So he got past that milestone. I mean, you think about recently with what Jimmy Anderson at 600 and Glenn McGrath and Walsh and those guys going past 500 for quick bowlers. Quite extraordinary. So Hadley got his four hundredth test wicket and the celebrations have been going on. But towards the end of it, they only managed to make us score two, I think, to win... The test match, you can imagine John Wright, who was captain of the team, and of course he was an opening batsman, and the other guy was Trevor Franklin. So the hilarious, right he just yells over at Mark Sneddon, who was 10, and I was 11. We're going to reverse the batting order. So you two North Shore mongrels, because we used to play club cricket together, state cricket for Auckland, and then uh, and play some international cricket together. So there we go. So you two could go out there, and we face Manoj Prabhakar. Now Snids thought he'd be just a glory seeker and just smash it and finish it. But he got an edge and his back went flying. So Snids' back goes flying. The ball lobs up and goes sort of like over the slipcord and lobs straight over. And what they get once so we don't cross for a single. So I've still got a you know, face. And we're going, hang on So we're laughing laughing at Sneed's throwing his bat away and trying to be a glory seeker and slice it somewhere for four. Yeah, win the game. So he got down the other end, and I'm like, oh great. So I think I ended up blocking one. And then Barker, who bowls those big, booming in-swingers, I wanted to just, oh, it's an easy game. i just ease us onto the left side, so going with the swing, going with the tide, got a leading edge, went through cover and ran through some <laughs> loose. So and I crossed, and there was the winning run. And it's a great trivia question because there's a couple of Aussies that laugh about it. it goes, Morrison, I was at a function at the SCG, and your horrible name came up. And they said, can you name this cricketer? Open the bowling in a test match and open the batting in the same test net and hit the winning run. What? So there you go, so we just crack up. And, and, and I, even I'd forgotten about that, go, God, who was that? You know, it's you, you <laughs> idiot. Is it? And you laugh, and you're crumbs. So yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, bizarre, isn't it, but that's cricket. That's what you love about cricket. It throws up all those crazy old stories.
1: That's one of the things, like going through the New Zealand openers, that's one of the things, you guys lost a lot of games in the 90s and in the 30s through to the 70s, really. And yet there's always a story like that that comes along. Like There was a lot of stories about players like Glenn Turner not being treated correctly and Richard Hadley going off to be professional and all those sorts of things. But in the middle of it, it feels like no matter what happened in New Zealand cricket, there was a lot of fun there. And you've kind of turned that into a profession in commentary haven't you you've taken all the fun from your personality and just be like well they're gonna put a camera on me and uh, they're gonna pay me a lot of money i'm gonna do this for them on the camera now
0: yeah and when i look at that for jared for t20 and particularly the start of the ipr because it really was sony who had the first decade of it and so what it was it was the the marriage of bollywood and cricket together and they went with that side of it and that was part of the showmanship of it all, because of the grandiose stuff that was going on in the studio and the host's sideline, who started to become very famous now in their own right doing other things, worked well, and because i also over the years explaining myself <laughs> why this is about is that my mother's from a Thespian background so she did a, a drama diploma at Auckland University in 1978 so I was 12. So I was around all these Thespian types my mother's boyfriend at the time ran the lighting show at the Mercury Theatre which is a big live theatre uh, of that lovely old era of theatre in Auckland so we would, there was I would go regularly to spot shows backstage in the lighting booth and then We'd moved, and so I was between playing a bit of rugby and cricket developing, and in between that, so you're talking 1977 78. My mother sent me to pantomime type classes, drama classes that you'd go and make things with pottery, and you do arty different things rather than just the old classic rugby racing bear scenario. So mine was about then going to this maiden theatre on a Saturday morning, catching the ferry from Devonport with mum. And we'd go across and do that. And my, and my sister, um, who was a little bit younger, so she made, I don't remember all the time coming to that. She was a bit younger. So that, if you like, being part of my blueprint, it's, it's in my veins as it were, to then hammer it up in front of the camera or get dressed up and have fun. Now, I remember Malcolm Con couldn't believe this back in Sydney. He obviously seen me on Fox dressed up as one of the masquerade dancers in St. Kitts, and think it was about 2015, and lo and behold, I that one. my mother's on the phone laughing with my wife back on the Sunshine Coast in Australia, and my son at the time is watching us going, yeah, here's your husband. That's what he's doing for a living. There he is. These puzzles on And the cricket, on because, of course, it's a night game in St Kitts, which is about lunchtime in Queensland and, and on the eastern boardwalk of Australia. And there I am. they thrown down to me, and I'm just dressed up in all this colourful stuff, which, again, T20 lends itself to them. And I suppose, in a way, Jared, I've massively resonated with that audience. And that's particularly the subcontinent and the West Indies because of the flow of music and dancing and dressing up. And actually having fun as part of the, in inverted commas, crickettainment Got Got any um, swimmers, got any board shorts, gone up to one of those blow-up things that some cats have gone down the slide and stuff and then a piece of camera or hopped in the swimming pool and the boys have had the boom up and they've tied it to the end of an old room and had a chat to me in the swimming pool. I've had a chat there holding the product. So you, you do, and I think T20 for me, obviously is is, is a love and you you enjoy doing and it's so much on the circuit but I think all of those early formative years where my mother took me along to Maiden Theatre and and all that exposure was great for me it was a great learning to be able to be comfortable in front of camera and then almost like go into a whole genre of acting come working come expressing yourself to get it across I think the subcontinent market love it. I mean, it really it grates with Kiwis, Aussies, and English. I mean, it's it's not about You know, why can't look just to me seriously? And I've actually recently got into a couple of things where I just go back to somebody who's just I giving you some real bad hate. Really, I like it. At least it's like, just going, Why do you go back to him? Why well, just thought I'd just go back and say, look, my dear thing. Um, Clearly I've revved you right up, but I don't mean to, but I just I'm fascinated to know why that's got under your skin if you don't think I should, you know, deliver it like this. And so they come back and you know, and I said, Well and then I blow them a kiss or emoji or on, on Twitter the feed and I'm just like, Last time my checked, brother was from the same planet, aren't we? And he comes back and has another tirade to go, And you live in Australia. God, I love you. <laughs> you know, so then they just and then they cut you off. So they're the ones that attacked you, and yet they're the ones that are cutting you off and disowning you. I said, oh, doesn't want really to talk to me. Anymore. Okay, so that's where I like to lighten it on lots of fronts and lots of levels, Jared. Because I mean, life's too short. I mean, hello, what's going on right now with COVID? I mean, life's too short not to um, actually be entertaining or, or, or actually smile on people's faces because a lot of it's pretty tough and pretty grim.
1: Well, as one son of an actress to uh, someone else involved in the theatre, it might explain me as well. Now I'm going to have to think about my mum taking me to all those plays and all my time in lighting rooms and filming them and my mum making me go uh, up on stage and all that sort of thing. So uh, a fascinating interview. Thank you so much for coming on. Lovely, Jared. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets.